Good afternoon. It's Tuesday, October 17th, 2017 at 1 o'clock Eastern Time, and this is Advancement Live. I'm your host, Andrew Gosen. Today, we are continuing a series of episodes that is peeking into the near future to imagine what advancement will look like in 2027. We're tackling each of the three core advancement disciplines in turn and supplementing these conversations with episodes focused on our operations and advancement services colleagues, as well as the vendors whose partnership is becoming increasingly important to our work. Today, we're tackling communications. This will be a fun conversation. Communications, I would argue, is the advancement discipline that has been disrupted most profoundly by the digital revolution over the past decade. Audiences aren't where they used to. Old communications channels may no longer work quite as well. Media consumption habits are changing. PR crises ignite faster and burn hotter. But at the same time, it's now possible to reach a global audience in real time with minimal cost. So there is no doubt that higher ed communicators are living in interesting times, and there is every chance that they may become even more interesting over the next 10 years. However, before I introduce today's guests and we get our conversation started, let me give a shout out to our sponsor. Advancement Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network. Our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be part of our live broadcasts by sharing your knowledge. Please participate in today's discussion by tweeting us using Higher Ed Live. All of our episodes are free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com, or you can take Higher Ed Live with you on the go by subscribing to the podcast. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. Are you looking for a way to better engage alumni and potential donors with on-brand storytelling? M. Stoner offers an eight-course series covering the essential elements of digital storytelling to engage your most important audiences. Interested in learning more? We are tweeting a link shortly with registration details. M. Stoner, thank you for the support. We really appreciate what you're doing for the advancement community by supporting Higher Ed Live. And now, I'm going to welcome our guests. I'm really excited. These are uh, three guests who, who are great friends, great professionals. I've really enjoyed working with the three of them in various contexts. First up is Jennifer Campbell. Jennifer is the Associate Vice President for College Relations and Communications at Ithaca College, where she oversees brand and positioning, public relations, and marketing and communications for enrollment and advancement. Since arriving at IC in the fall of 2017, Jennifer has been leading a number of major initiatives, including evolving the college's brand identity, overhauling the web experience, increasing news and media visibility, improving transparency and visibility for the administration, and reshaping the communications team's staffing and operations as it continues its shift from service delivery to strategic alignment. Jennifer is joined by Charlie Melikar. Charlie is a senior consultant in Martin Lundy's strategic communications practice. For the past 15 years, he has been immersed in the field of nonprofit communications, serving as an advisor and thought leader for colleges and universities and the professional organizations that support them. Most recently, Charlie served as Associate Vice Chancellor of Development and Alumni Relations Communications at Vanderbilt. He has served on the Case Commission on Communications and Marketing, Case District 3 Board of Directors, and co-chaired the Task Force on Social Media. He is a past chair and current member of the Executive Committee for the Public Relations Society of America's Counselors to Higher Ed section, which is focused on senior leaders in higher education public relations. And our third guest is Tracy Vosberg from Virginia Tech. 
Tracy joined Virginia Tech's Advancement Division in September 2015 as Senior Associate Vice President for University Relations, and she is a member of the division's senior leadership team. She most recently served as Associate Vice President of University Communications at Cornell, where she provided communications leadership for strategic initiatives, including a capital campaign and sesquicentennial celebrations. Before working at Cornell, she was station manager for Penn State Public Broadcasting. Prior roles at PSPB included director of production and national series production manager. And earlier in her career, she held several broadcast management and production positions at the McNeil Lehrer NewsHour and National Geographic based in Washington, DC. Tracy, Jennifer, Charlie, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss this topic. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we're keeping this series very, very simple. Um, we are going to dive on in with a very simple question, and then I'm going to ask uh, our guests to reflect on the question in turn. Um, the question is very simple. When you think about what communications in a higher ed context will look like in 10 years, in 2027, um, the first question is, what do you think will be the challenges that communicators working in the higher ed space will be facing? And Jennifer, let's start with you, please. Okay, okay. Um, um, so I think, I think when I think about this, which is probably a lot, um, like many of us, what, what really stands out to me is the sheer uncertainty of where higher education is going. I think we all have a sense that it's at an inflection point. Um, but I don't think most of us, um, if we're being honest with ourselves, really know where things are going to head. So it makes it a little hard to anticipate. I think we've got, um, you know, decreasing um, funding um, to, to, to institutions, especially tuition-dependent institutions. We've got philanthropy spreading out in, in wider and wider ways. Um, we've got sort of uh, the... the um, you know, increasing questions about the real value proposition of higher education um, in our economy, and um, you know, incomes that are that are stratifying even farther. So, I think um, the place that higher ed is going to play in terms of um, social mobility, in terms of the social compact, in terms of um, you know, creating knowledge that helps um, both students and and you know, the rest of the world is um, it's going to be a a tougher case to make um, as we have both budget pressures and social pressures at the same time and demographic changes. So, um, yeah, I, I see a lot of uncertainty ahead of us. <laughs> well, that's a sobering prospect. I actually, I shared with an audience in Australia last week uh, the, the Pew research that indicates that, that um, there's sort of an increasingly partisan perception about the value of higher ed in the U.S. and they were they were all taken aback to see the data in quite, quite such uh, stark presentations. So I think you're you're right that that's something that we're going to have to be grappling with. Tracy, let's go to you next. What are, do you think when you think about the challenges that we'll be facing ten years from now? Um, well, I would say that well, I, I would say that completely with Jenny. With Jenny, we have a, a really, a really interesting landscape. And landscape and it, that manifests that, that manifests in two ways that are going to be that are going to be. One of them is, of them is um, the amount of time we're being reactive instead of proactive and the amount of time, energy, and effort that's taking away from doing the really good strategic work. I think that's a new challenge for us, um, or at least here it's a challenge that, that those kind of issues that, that are about the assault on higher ed are taking away from us being able to you know, fully implement forward on, on really good strategic work and, and planning and ideas that we have. 
So that's that's that piece. Um, I, and, and then I think when you think about the work we're trying to do inside the advancement model, in 10 years, you know, sort of that same old delivery uh, is, is really a challenge. We have to all figure out how to move forward and, and we can't just do broad communications. If you look at um, annual fund, we have to segment, we have to target, we have to know who our audiences are, we have to reach them where they are, the way they want to be reached with the message that they, they tailor to a way that they want to hear it. And so I, I, I think that um, while we have a, an, uh, a really competitive landscape in higher ed, we have higher ed for the first time having a, a crisis of um, you know the society looking at about the value we also have as you said Andrew um, very different modes of delivery and and very different habits of all the people we're trying to speak to so I think that all of the I mean those challenges I hope we're gonna flip and talk about all the great opportunities that that gives us but um, but it does really put a, a really really challenging landscape out there I think for a communicator in higher ed right now Thanks, Tracy. Uh, Charlie, how does this look from your vantage point? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd echo those points. I think we're at a time of just a lot of skepticism right now about the the, the role of higher ed, the place of it. And I, I think, to me, that, that's, that can be true for a lot of different industries and fields. Where it's particularly challenging is um, when we're not going to lead, when we retrench, right? So rather than uh, step out and be bold, uh, and defend that ground and, and not just talk about the negative, but really talk about what the hope, what the possibilities are. Um, I, I find that some places are getting quiet or getting a little bit uh, more risk averse. And I think it's now is the time to, to talk about, you know, why, why, these, why higher education is important, why our institutions are distinctive or at least um, have distinctive characteristics what we bring to the world and, and why the world's a better place because we exist. I think that comes through really good branding processes, but um, I worry a little bit that because of the noise, because of the negativity, we might kind of default to safer positions. And if we're talking about over a decade horizon, that's problematic in the short term and perilous in the, in the long term. So I think the challenge really is, and to frame it also as an opportunity, the challenge is really to, to double down on who we are and the opportunity is to engage people in that process. So that's a sobering way to start the conversation. Um, let's pivot now to focus on the, the opportunities. Um, Tracy, could we please start with you this time? So, so I do think some of the things we talked about really are the opportunities that we have. So because we're able to segment and target, we can talk very specifically to almost in, down to the individual level. Because we have, um, you know, getting into a digital first kind of way of delivering our communications, we, we can be really, really unified. We can be, you know, we, there is a way to do that. I also think that, um, you know, out of, out of need, a lot of good things come. And I think that higher ed right now is, is uh, it's it, I, I went through this in the PBS world. You know, PBS and NPR were were for many years and still are, but that's not my industry anymore. I'm on the chopping block at a federal level. Who needs to fund that? We don't need them anymore. There is no value. And and through learning how to talk about the value of public broadcasting, the value of public radio, it got it was able to go from top down to grassroots. Um, 
sort of outcry of don't take my public radio away. I think that, that the higher ed is going through that right now. And I think we're all learning how to work together more. We're learning how to unify around what is the value, what is the return on investment. And so uh, it's a term that, I don't know, Andrew, you might've taught me, I can't remember who to give credit to, but there's a term coopetition. And I think one of, one of the opportunities is we need to learn how to, um, you know, collaborate really well we need to learn how to when we come together then we need to learn how to to then in that same space be be also competitive because we're going after the same faculty the same students that kind of thing but i think there's huge opportunity for for us to come together um as a as an industry and do a really good job of saying what our saying what our value is and getting the support and and that that base shored up and then be able to differentiate ourselves because we have communication tools and, and evolving ways that, that we are going to be able to differentiate and speak individually to, to whether it be um, our alums or our prospective students and, and kind of create our space and our way. So um, I think there are really good ways to engage society, engage with each other, engage with partners, to to showcase our um, our value for prospective employers, to work with K-12 to make sure we're helping them give us the pipeline that we need so that we can then help the workforce by preparing the students to move forward and help navigate all of that um, uncertainty of the future by, by being the place where you figure it out and, and we're, we're a support mechanism to it. And, and beyond that, I guess I'm, I'm looking for what other genius ideas others have. I really like the idea of coopetition. That, that wasn't me who, who introduced that to you, but I love the term and I'm definitely going to steal it. Um, before moving on to, to uh, Jenny and Charlie, I just want to follow up on this whole idea of, well, the coopetition idea, really. So I know that, that there's been a series of conversations out there in the advancement space about the the sort of dynamic of cause marketing versus institutional marketing and is it ever plausible to try to think of an institution as a cause can we can we make that conceptual leap and what i find intriguing about what you just said is it may be difficult for an individual institution to portray itself as a cause but it feels slightly more plausible to think of higher ed in general mm -hmm. as a cause that we could mobilize people behind is that I, what I do the three of you think about that? I totally agree with you on that. Yes. And then I sit as a land grant. I wonder if land grants have a special role in that. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I throw that out there for conversation as well. Great. I think there's also, I agree. And I think there's also a way to think about not just higher ed. Did Charlie freeze? Charlie froze. Charlie froze. All right. We'll assume Charlie's going to make it back eventually. Um, well, I can hop in and adamantly. All right. <laughs> Am I unfrozen? There we go. You're unfrozen. Okay. All right. Please. Um, so uh, the uh, the internet muted me because my comment wasn't strong enough. Um, so, so I I think that we can look at higher ed as a cause, but I think we can also look at it as a facilitator of causes um, that we're a vehicle to advance issues, advance causes, and I think. It's so hard to disaggregate all of the things that an institution is, but we can stand for things. We could stand for something, and then we could pursue causes. So I think there. I think sometimes breaking breaking the the institution down into smaller pieces and parts makes it more accessible. Like a, a, an institution can be impenetrable to somebody. I don't really know how they can have an impact, but 
they can have an impact on an issue and help the people who are pursuing those issues. So I think there's a, a bite-sized ability that might help with this. And I think Tracy's already made the point that there's all sorts of opportunity out there in terms of enhanced audience segmentation. Mm -hmm, exactly. So the bite-sized cause piece connected to the right audience, it feels like there's all sorts of power inherent in that kind of connecting of the dots. Um, so Jenny, let's move on to you now. Um, what do you think about when you think about the opportunities that will be? Uh, well, I, I certainly would um, would most certainly underscore what um, Tracy and Charlie have just said. I think the the opportunity to um, speak more as one voice, um, and and also, frankly, to um, cross sectors. You know, what would it look like to have community colleges, um, private residential colleges, and and you know, R ones um, working together? I think um, I think the pressure we're under is is potentially causing us to retrench in a way and sort of talk to our own base and secure our own bases a little bit more in a way that might be missing the bigger point. Um, you know, the industry is under assault. Any given institution is not necessarily um, special there. So um, I, I just wanted to underscore that. I think too, um, you know, you touched on it a bit in a moment ago, but I think um, especially in this era of um, shrinking budgets, um, or at least budget pressures and, and, you know, questions about tuition dollars, we, we can potentially help bridge in communication some of that need for a more personal touch um, because we have, you know, if we get smart about how we use data, um, we're, we could be that opportunity to sort of scalably um, personalize to mass groups of people and sort of get rid of that dichotomy between um, mass communication and personal communication. I think we have an opportunity there to be one of those bridges and also to be a much I think we're one of the groups in, on campuses that also can help bridge that sort of life cycle sort of view so that people aren't handed off from prospective student to current student to alumnus to benefactor and treated in very different ways. Um, we, I think we're one of those threads that can cut through um, all of those things and, and truly follow someone throughout their experience and, 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 and morph to meet where they are. Um, I think the last thing I would say on the positive side of the constant um, churn of PR crises is um, I feel like I'm seeing a maturation of public relations in institutions because of what's going on here. I think um, issues management is becoming a real thing <laughs> um, and not just a phrase that everybody memorized um, and that we're, we really have an opportunity to be at the table um, well in advance of, of issues arising now in ways that I think um, I'm seeing more and more of. I like your last point there. I mean, that that strikes me as a case where we can deliver real value by being sort of the sort of the antennae of the institution, um, seeing problems not necessarily before they happen, but just as they're beginning to manifest itself. And yeah. of course, I've been banging the drum for social listening for a long time <laughs> at this point. But before moving on to Charlie's sense of opportunities, I wanted to uh, touch on, on the point you made about a time of retrenchment. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because for me, that uh, that sort of has has a resonance with the retrenchment that happened in a lot of places in 2008 when the financial crisis hit. Mm -hmm. And certainly the, the institution I was working at at that point dealt with the financial shock by sort of contracting back into what it felt were the, the sort of bread and butter um, programs that had sustained it so long for, for you know, centuries at that point, right? Yes. So understandable, but I think that there's a cost to that as well in that you, you retrench into something that may or may not position you to thrive in the future. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right, Charlie, I'm sorry, I skipped over you uh, on the opportunities question. What do you see as the main opportunities? That yeah, are, yeah, yeah, and I, and I was, I was, I was frozen, frozen, like, like Han Solo, Han Solo, Han Solo, Han Solo of the, uh, yeah. 
the advanced, the advanced life 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 So, so um, you know, I think some of the opportunities really have to do with, you know, you talked about social listening. I, I think of it in terms of being present in conversations that we have more tools at our disposal. And I think we have a sharper or at least Uh-oh. Frozen again. Only when it's his turn to talk. That's right. <laughs> Did I unfreeze? You're unfrozen again. Oh, boy. I, I don't know what the uh, what the trick is. So I don't know where I, st where I stopped, but I'll just keep going. So I, I think there's a real opportunity to, uh, to, to genuinely engage in dialogue. And I, we've been talking about this for too long, and I'm not sure we've acted on it enough, but... We've had, we have tools, I think we have lessons learned to really think about, you know, it, metrics is part of it and social listening is part of it, but be genuinely engaged with people. Really, when we ask people uh, what they, what they, if they'd like to join with us in our future, whether it's through uh, volunteerism, being a student or a, a donor, what's the feedback loop, right? How are we not just asking people to do stuff for us, asking them to join us in our mission and then how do we show that they helped? And it comes down to, you now we're getting into things like stewardship, but I, I think we need, really need to show people that they matter. And communications is fundamental to our ability to do that. We have to not just tell great stories, but tell great stories that matter to people and that are, I mean, we talked about segmentation already, but are, are um, adding value to the content stream in a way that it's, um, it attaches them to us, that we, we, we evolve the story over time I think the only way to do that is to be really authentic and authenticity. We just talked about crisis and issues management. Authenticity doesn't have an on or an off button and it's not situation dependent. I think by getting down to bare wood of, of who we are, what we stand for and how we behave in our, in our interaction with our constituents, I think we need to carry that through everything that we do. Even if it, um, even if it can be hard to do, it can be hard for some of our leaders to understand how to do. I think authenticity and this real genuine sense of um, asking people to join us in our mission is one of the, the biggest opportunities out there. And that actually feels to me like a dimension of the growing uh, maturation process that Jenny was describing. Yeah. So let me let me ask a question pertaining to this before we move on to the next the next top level question. How do you how do you simultaneously commit yourself as an institution to inviting people into a conversation at the same time that so much of the conversation online is becoming increasingly toxic. Do you have any thoughts on, on how to do that in a way that, that isn't going to get you embroiled in unwinnable uh, flame wars or just suck up so much time that you can't do anything else? And that's any of the three of you, uh, whatever yeah, thoughts you have on I, that. I guess I wish that you were going to answer that question for us because I think we're all, we're all grappling with that. I mean, I, you know, it is, it is interesting, Andrew, because I think all of us are having to make choices and we're all also trying to help our leadership make choices about when they step forward and when they don't, when they don't step forward. And um, because it is so divisive. And if you look at, at least if I take a look at um, the institutions I've been at in the one at Virginia Tech right now, as, as a land grant and as a comprehensive university, uh, we have a very diverse alumni base. We have a very diverse student base in terms of opinion. And so so when when do you become an opinion leader? When do you enter into that conversation in a way? Um, and, and who are you talking to? And because quite honestly, in today's world, 
if you come out with an opinion, you, you surely are in a room full of people that don't agree with you. So it used to be that there was a place where um, a president could almost take a political stance on something and most of their, their stakeholder base would be with them. I don't think we operate in that world any longer. And so it's a much more difficult conversation about how you, how you enter into that. And, and I think it does play out uh, in social media first. But it plays out, you know, in a ripple effect across right down to the, the old letter writing that alums still do, you know, and that still happens. Um, so, so I do think that's a, I think it's a really important question. I don't begin to have the answer to it. I would love to hear what everybody thinks about it, and and I and I think it's actually um, it's fairly critical and timely that we we begin to figure out how to help our leadership answer that one. That's a non-answer, but Jenny and Charlie, what do you think? Um, well, I think it goes back to um, something Tracy started the conversation with um, related to um, the higher education higher education leaders um, sort of working together. Um, I, I'm going to be, I'm usually really pessimistic, but on this one, I have a streak of idealism that I can't really shake. And I guess that's a good thing. I, I'd like to think that um, we are one of the few sectors of society that can actually teach people how to do this <laughs> and, you know, sort of model the behavior, um, even, even when it's, you know, modeling, um, you know, informed disagreement. Um, not that we can make up for 12 years of, you know, poor education and suddenly people will learn how to think critically. I'm, I'm not that naive, but I do think there's a sense where um, I think higher education leadership can can take the higher ground in a way and um, demonstrate what it's like to be engaged, um, an engaged participant with a stake in something without resorting to either, you know, hiding in your corner and not not saying anything publicly or sort of joining in the flame wars. Um, I think we do have a risk right now of being overly safe in what we say publicly in a way that every leader looks almost interchangeable from every other leader. And I think that's gonna be a mistake. Um, so I think figuring out how to communicate authentically while modeling the principles that we'd very much um, wish that other people were um, were modeling and, and doing it bravely and not just in your own circles is gonna be critical. Um, now the how I don't know maybe Charlie knows how to do that. <laughs> All right, Charlie. I'm, I'm going to freeze, so I'm preparing <laughs> for this moment. Um, I I agree wholeheartedly. I I think you know, I think being bold and being about something is so important. I think we have part of the defaulting to safe is being excellent at everything. We're just we're excellent. You know, okay, well, good. <laughs> I mean, I kind of expect that, right? So. Um, where are you focusing? What is the, what is the thing? What are the set of the things that you're going to stand for and you're willing to defend and you're willing to, I love the idea of modeling the conversation because if you're going to do something bold, there are going to be people who don't like it and they might like it for really legitimate reasons and they might like it for reasons that aren't legitimate, but how are you preparing leaders to engage in those conversations, invite the criticism and talk about, you know, what it means to make this kind of a decision. I think, and I get, I work a lot in campaign context, so a lot of it's around priority setting, but, you know, when you, when you have a, a really well-framed campaign, you're choosing. All right, he'll be back. I, th I think you're, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, it's weird for me. I remember back at the case 2011 social media and community conference and how one of the big bones of contention um, that arose during, during the public sessions was whether or not every 
everything deserves a response. Mm -hmm. And there was a school of thought that tended to be represented by people who'd been in higher ed comms for, for decades. It was like, yeah, any, anytime anything is out there, you have to respond. And I was trying to make the case, no, 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 no. Uh, the rules have changed. And I feel like knowing what you're about um, positions you not only to make this strong, proactive stand on things that you do care about, but it also helps guide you in not going down rabbit holes of things you don't particularly care about. Are you unfrozen, Charlie? I think so. All right, you were talking about campaign communications and being bold. Yeah, we need a hand signal system for when I, uh, <laughs> I just keep prattling on. Um, my, my, my only point there was that a really a well-framed campaign is, is choice-making, right? We're gonna advance certain ideas, advance certain priorities, and others won't make it to the front, at least not now. And it's the same thing about institutional decision-making, right? So how do we talk not just about what we're doing, but why we're doing it and why right now? And as people raise issues, um, express concern, express concern in ways that aren't productive, how do we decide, okay, this is a, this is a point worth pursuing and a, and a conversation worth engaging because it's gonna invite people in and who's just throwing, who's just throwing rocks? And I think the discipline around you know, ignoring the rock throwers, even if they don't go away, because we used to say, well, they'll go away. <laughs> they don't. Um, you need to keep going. People expect you to keep going. Our students need us to keep going. And there's some intestinal fortitude that comes with that. And I think it's really interesting that the things you choose to draw a line in the sand about may actually vary considerably from institution to institution. So having an understanding of yeah. Who you are, where you came from, and what matters to your audience, I think is really important. I've been I've been keeping a very interested eye on how Purdue and University of Chicago, for instance, are handling the whole free speech on campus debate and how different that is from some of the other responses that you see. And it feels like that's just a, a result of um, thoughtful decision making, like we've just been describing, and then moving on it in a way that that actually does make them stand out from from the pack. If I could just add one more, sure. point, hopefully without freezing. I think uh, when things get heated, it's more important than ever to stay close to family. And I'd include all of our kind of concentric circles of, of uh, alumni, parents, students in that family that the world beyond the borders of campus will likely have a certain Until Charlie comes back, it's actually really intriguing that idea of concentric circles of our family. Mm -hmm. And how close in do you get, and 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 around what topics, and and I think probably all of us, if we sat and started dissecting what our what our days and weeks look like right now, um, that's that's a very effective strategy for how we go about when are you just listening and when are you reacting. And I I think Charlie's back. I'd love to hear the end. Of Am that. I back? Yep. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I'm going to talk faster. Circles. So yeah, I just think the external world will have, and news media and social media will have. Uh, a point of view on how an issue is being handled that might be completely different from reality. And that you just have to kind of decide that's okay, right? Because um, you may get to the point where you've corrected the dialogue, but if we lose the opportunity to make sure those closest to us know why we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing it, then we've got a real issue. But I, I think as especially big issues pop up, we just need to stay really close and make sure that those who, even if they're, they're upset about it, they're at least getting a real. I'll, I'll pop in on something, I think. All right, sure. Um, I think one of, the, one of the issues that we see in the, in the sort of 
especially on the fundraising and alumni relations side of advancement is um, that tension as it relates to um, sort of older generations of the family and, and you know, not necessarily being happy with the way our society is changing and therefore also not too happy with the ways that, you know, this institution that um, they don't recognize anymore is changing. You know, we see it tremendously around issues related to um, diversity and inclusion, um, but certainly other political issues as well. And I think that tension for especially individual giving, you know, in, individual alumni relations people who do feel beholden on behalf of the institution to keep some people close who fundamentally just think that the institution is 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 going off the rails is um, probably especially tricky. Um, and, um, you know, I we try to educate them, you know, when we can, but we do lose some people. And there's this, it sometimes does feel like we're hedging our bets and, and sort of betting on the future generations against the, the, the previous generations in some cases. I think that's a good point and a very tricky channel to navigate. Uh, balance being whatever, whatever metaphor of choice you want to use to illustrate um, that particular challenge. All right, Charlie, you're back. You're not frozen. I have a new location. Excellent. So. <laughs> Excellent. Applied problem solving in action. Yeah. Excellent. Exactly. So uh, let's move on to the third question that we're going to tackle today. Um, Charlie, you get this one first in your in your new location. Um, so what elements of a conventional communications program do you think we'll be able to stop doing? Uh, yeah, this is a tough one, right? Um, so I'm hoping that I freeze at the very beginning of my answer. Um, so I, my, my cheap kind of um, get out of jail free answer is all of it. Um, and the reason I say that is it connects directly. Oh, I was so on the edge of my seat for that. <laughs> All right. Um, can we move on to you, Jenny? Until until um, I have a hard time with this one too because I don't think um, I think what we're seeing is is a nice robust mix. Wait, I think Charlie's unfrozen. Am I unfrozen? You're unfrozen. All right, man. Charlie. Sorry. So I, I it connects directly to the point that Jenny made about on a different topic that if we're so beholden to our past, we sacrifice our future. I think that it, it completely applies to this question that. If we're doing things because we used to do them or because people liked what they were, then we're forgetting about what we need to become. So I think any communication vehicle that we can't point to and say, this is why we're doing it, this is why we know it works, and this is the kind of uh, feedback we're getting, cut it. I don't care what it is. And I think that's a, that's a today answer, that's a tomorrow answer, that's a 10 years from now answer. So when people say, well, magazines will be gone in, in five years and all that, Maybe they're not, maybe they won't. They, if it's a bad one, it should definitely be gone. <laughs> but if it's a good one, it should, it should be around for 30 years if it's still effective. So it, that's why I think this is such a tough question to answer because I, I think it's completely institution and constituency centric um, that what works for one place won't work for another. And that's going all the way back to your first question, the real challenge on communications practice is not having the discipline and the time to ask that of yourself over and over and over and over again. You know, strategic communication planning can't be in every three-year process, um, three-year um, on a cycle. And you have to always, even if you like it, even if you get, um, you know, get jazzed about doing it, always ask, does this work and is it relevant? I think the does it work piece is important as well. I think implicit in your comments, there's sort of a, a substratum of, of uh, focus on data and measuring. 
outcomes absolutely um, that you you need to have in place in order to be able to do this exercise all right Jenny let's move on to you um, you got a brief reprieve but now you're back in the house <laughs> um, yeah I, I would I would have I would say what Charlie just said I think the other thing which is a, just a corollary to this is if we're gonna stop doing anything I think we're gonna not be able to get away with this sort of spray can um, you know direct marketing that we don't really know who you are and what and what you care about but we're gonna send you this thing uh, I think that's that is probably gonna go away um, in favor of you know actually creating pieces that are um, built on intelligence about um, the audience and what works um, I don't think people are gonna have patience for us anymore for for um, you know mass mailings that clearly are mass mailings Tracy how about you well, I mean, it's it's really a form of agreement, but I would say that um, we can't we can't just continue to do that scattershot that just send it out um, old appeal. We can't just um, rely on what used to work. We can't rely on an, an aging um, donor base. We can't rely on what worked last year. Uh, we can't work in silos. We can't have. Um, a lack of uniformed, uh, strategically decided, intentional communication uh, delivery out without knowing exactly, you know, who we're communicating with and at what time. And I, I think that with, you know, and, and and there's a lot of magic in this. And I and I don't profess, profess to have managed any of it well, but but there is no reason to just send out a broad appeal now when we know exactly who our alumni are we know inside that base you know who who has given who hasn't given what they're interested in what their affinities are i mean we have all of this information and and i don't think we can i think we have to stop just treating them all the same because they're not and and um the the more you get to know the the demographics of the group that's going to be with us um you know at least for the rest of my career they they expect us to know who they are what they're interested in when they want to be communicated with, how they want to be communicated with, and, and we have to respect them for, for that, and, and others are figuring that out. And, that, and that's the other piece that I, I think that it doesn't do us any good to work um, in silos on our campuses, which we all do, and, and we have all these chaotic communications. We also have to realize that, that we're competing, not just in a higher ed market to get above the noise with our communications, but, but there are NGOs and private and public industries that are all talking to our same um, people that we communicated, whether they're whether they're prospective students or whether they're they're alumni or whether they're donors or not, or partners that we or people we want to hire our students, a lot of people are all talking to the same people, and we we don't have we don't have a lock on anything there. So we have to be really smart and really targeted, and we can no longer rely on broad-based, antiquated, old modes and ways and thoughts and strategies. We got to be really dynamic and. And um, you know, constantly swimming forward. I think there's a there's a big data component to your comments as well, because obviously you can't do that kind of targeted marketing if you don't have the data that actually. So it's not just a commitment to data conceptually, but then it's a data integrity issue, and in that if your data is not good, you've got yourself an obstacle to handling that. Um, I was also thinking as you were speaking about uh, sort of more decentralized operations where you do have the silo problems and the emergence of what I guess you could call sort of a, a digital tragedy of the commons in which lots of people now have keys to really powerful communications tools and they're worried about their thing that's important next week and if that means they have to send out three emails to get the number of people they wanted at an event in Tulsa then they're just going to go ahead and do that 
and they don't worry about the damage that they're doing to your entire digital ecosystem. Um, we just we did a, a study with iModules where we've known anecdotally for a while that we have a problem with sending too much email, um, but they came in and they actually looked at all of the email that we sent from January 2016 to the end of 2016, 25 million emails. And sitting down and having conversations with people about this problem when you actually have numbers and you can show how unsubscribe rates spike when people are getting nailed uh, past a certain frequency has really changed the tenor of our conversations about it. Um, so I guess there too, data is giving us a path forward to address some of these issues um, because all of a sudden we, we understand the shape and the size of the problems in a way that we, we haven't before. All right, let's move on now to the most exciting question. Uh, what steps can we take now to position our organizations to thrive in the future? And Tracy, let's start with you on this one, please. Wow. Okay. Well, so so I think my answer to that is about uh, alignment and and um, relationships. And and I know that we all have these organizational structures, and, and some may be centralized or more decentralized or centralized, and and more top down or what, bottom up. But but to me, it's not about org charts. It's about relationships. And so I think that we have to be really, really smart about the relationships that we build across our campuses and then the relationships that we build in that, as Charlie said, those concentric circles of, of, of our family and, and how it reaches out. So, so I think that, um, I, I think that relation, you know, building the relationships and, and using, so um, Andrew, to your point about data, we have all this data and we have all these tools. Well, understanding that data and using those tools appropriately and correctly and with, governance around them is is probably key and so you got to have all those relationships in place so that everybody um, understands the why behind whatever governance you're putting and then you have to be in alignment and you have to be coordinated um, and 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 so I I don't think I have any other brilliance behind behind that idea um, alignment and and uh, relationships so people all are operating off of the same set of standards and they and not because they're told to but because they understand why I like that point it relates to uh, one of my favorite topics that I've been banging the drum about recently which is the notion that it's easy to fall into the trap of seeing technology or data as the solution but usually that'll get you maybe to a 50% of a solution if you're lucky the other 50% has to do with people and process yeah. and if you if you can't get the people process part of the equation right, um, the best technology and the best data in the world isn't going to do you any good. Jenny, let's move on to you, please. Yeah, I think on a similar vein, I mean, if I were to sort of create from scratch a, a staff that I think could take us, you know, into that 10 plus year mark, I think I would, I would try to hire people who or, or train people to be almost like um creative behavioral scientists right we have i think we've we're about closing we're closing out of that phase where we're all just kind of fetishizing all this data and you know gather more data and gather more data um what we really need to be doing is understanding what kind of experiments we need to run and why um what kind of questions are we trying to ask and what will get us the answer so that we're not just drowning in in, in piles of data that you know, it doesn't really matter in terms of the end result or would we change anything? So I think that that magical mix of sort of people who understand um, analytics enough to understand how to, you know, set up experiments that'll show, you know, what we need to learn about our audiences in order to get to, to the end result that we're after would be my, my dream team. Um, I think too, along with that, um, 
we I think we are in a position to really be bridge builders across institutions, across across different institutions and inside our institutions as we look to um, I think really help people be more a lot more audience focused. I think I think we're, we've been the ambassadors of that for a long time, and I think we've got some some tools in our hands now that are enabling us to do that in ways where we can really be sort of the, the, the teachers and the conveners of, of this knowledge and um, in ways that can help break down that sense of everybody communicating based on their part of the org chart instead of based on you know a real sense of what they have to offer. And I think the last thing I would say is related around offers, and this I guess is more specific to advancement. I think um, I think we're in a position because of the kind of intelligence that we collect and that kind of audience empathy that we naturally sort of try to have is, I think we're gonna have to do a lot better job of offering a lot more than we ask for from, um, from our constituents, especially on the alumni side. Um, I think it's gonna be a lot more expensive. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the, if the if the return on um, for every dollar gained is, is a lot worse than it used to be, or sorry, if the amount spent for every dollar gained is a lot higher because we're, um, we have to provide lifelong value um, in a way that I think we were able to take for granted before. We would use those phrases, but I'm not sure we really did a whole lot about it. And I think a really smart communications operation can, can really be at the center of um, that sense of what are we offering to people and what are we doing to say thank you to them before we ask them to do anything for us. I, I agree profoundly with all of, all of your comments right there. Uh, let's move on to Charlie, please. Okay, so I'm gonna roll the dice here and start talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I agree profoundly too. I mean, I, I, one of the things I've been fond of saying lately is you know, instincts, instincts win. Um, I think I, I like what you said earlier about we're getting near the end of this phase of kind of fetishizing data, where data used inappropriately, or at least without the resources to do something, actually just brings things to a screeching halt. Because now people sit there and look at it and question it is, I'm a huge believer in data informed decision making and communications, but not without the resources. So sometimes they'll say if, if you're not going to back it up, with the people and the resources to do something about it, don't bother. Because at a minimum, you waste time. And then it's sometimes even like talk about surveys, you ask people a question, and then you don't do anything different based on the answer. I'd make an argument you've actually done harm. <laughs> so I think, you know, really good instincts, really good ears, really good eyes, you know, how are we, how are we really sensitive to the, to the institution in the moment, and our audience, our constituents, start. Right. I mean, that's a great place to start. We know where we want to go. We know what the, the nature of the conversation is. And we're really attuned to the marketplace in some ways. Then you lay your metrics on top of that and you can really zoom. The other part of that is metrics are only as good as the relationships, which has come up a lot. That if I come to you in your office and say, you know, it looks like the 8,500 emails we sent out last year on your behalf didn't really perform that well. Let's talk about another approach. If we don't have a good relationship, my metrics don't matter, right? So how have I built trust? How have I shown that I'm, I'm listening to you and that I'm not just giving you a list of um, metrics and kind of email data so that I can change your behavior, but really change what we're doing in pursuit of your goals? So trust, those instincts. I think those are good points too. Um, Let's actually tack back. We've got we've got about ten minutes left, and I'd like to wrap back around to a point that that 
you made um, in your sort of opening remarks, Tracy, uh, how, how one of the challenges that we're grappling with is being forced into such a set of reactive positions that we can't be proactive. And I'd like to actually drill in on, on that particular issue um, from the three of your perspectives. What are the things that you think we could do that would position ourselves to be able to invest our time more proactively and more strategically in whatever way, shape, or form that may take and sort of buy ourselves the, the time and the, the space um, in which to do this more proactive, forward-thinking work, um, which I assume a lot of us enjoy more than the reactive, uh, panicked PR response type stuff. That's an open question. Whoever wants to jump in first, go ahead. Um, I guess since I started it, I'll, I'll, I'll go a little deeper. Well, you know, I think one of them has to do with how communications are positioned at the university. So if you have leadership that is out there with any kind of voice uh, speaking about anything they want to at any time, it's a lot harder for the communications people to, to be proactive because you end up always being reactive. So I think one of them is, you know, sort of as Jenny said, the, the, the maturation of communications inside higher ed, I think that's nothing but a good thing because it means that um, if, if not just the person who's the spokesperson for the university or the person who's trying to very st strategically deploy messaging, but if all of leadership is thinking about that, um, that space in which they're speaking and communicating uh, before they've said something, then, then, then you are in a better position. So I actually think part of it has to do with the positioning of communications on our campuses. Um, and, and I speak from a very privileged space in that right now because I, I do have um, access and an ability to try to get in front of things and say, before we go out and, and say this, do we want to think about how it's going to be heard by different audiences? We still say what's true and we still say what's honest. And, and I agree with Charlie, you have to be completely authentic. So it's not about saying something false or not talking, but it's about thinking in advance before you say it about how it's going to be heard. And, and that's the thing I, I find myself in a lot of rooms saying a lot of communications is, is about what you don't say. And, and then a lot of communications are about how you say what you do say. So it's not just about what are you saying, but it's when you say it, it's how you say it. And if you say it, and, um, and if, and if there's a, you know, a closed room of communicators doing that work without having leadership of campus with them, they can only be so successful. So, so I guess one of the ways to be more proactive is to have leadership on board in agreeing that we want to be more proactive and not just in the news cycle, so to speak. And that can be, you know, a tweet, a, a one tweet that takes us all day off in a different, you know, path because somebody who's got a leadership role at the institution decided they were going to come out and have an opinion that is now being seen as a university opinion. And we just have to get people to understand that, you know, that's kind of their role and, and they need to help us so we can help them. It feels to me like that you're, you're in a great position as you've identified and having a president who's actually willing to get more deeply involved in really defining and communicating the priorities in such a way that other staff get exactly what the priorities are and can uh, sort of be deputized in a sense to go out there and spread the message while remaining in the channel. Yeah. Uh, that's a real asset. I think one of the, the most effective uses of time I've ever experienced in my career in higher ed was when I was working at Princeton. And once a year we had what was called the traveler's meeting. 
And Shirley Tillman had just become president. And she would get everybody who traveled on behalf of the institution, um, be it athletic coaches, uh, admissions folks, alumni affairs folks, development folks. And we'd all be in a room for an hour and she would tell us what her themes were for the year. And she was a really, really good communicator. So it distilled down really nicely. Do they still do that? Yeah, I, well, I, she's not the president anymore, but that was certainly, that was a fundamental part of how she approached every year. And so the combination of that plus the faculty that she wanted us to feature Mm -hmm. was was like this little gift wrapped package that made everything else so much easier, especially because we could then go back to the faculty and say, well, Shirley uh, suggested that you be a good candidate for this. And that tends to get email responses faster than otherwise. Um, so back on, on this whole question of positioning ourselves to be more proactive. Uh, Jenny, how about you? I, I agree with everything Tracy said, and I think particularly the point about um, making sure that you've got a deep bench of people who are um, aligned around the key things where there needs to be alignment, but understands how to speak with their own personality where, where appropriate to. I think um, the best thing we can do is, is be a, a wide um, sort of talent scout in terms of finding out who those people are and working with them. Um, I think the other piece is to just sort of be really um, clear-eyed about the fact that not everything can be proactively planned for and have processes um, in place when you're dealing with crises that don't disrupt everything else. Um, and I know this could be a luxury for small staffs, but um, what whatever you have to do in terms of process, do you, do you identify sort of a fire brigade that gets called off when something happens um, so that the rest of the operation isn't disrupted? Um, because I think increasingly, um, you know, all it takes is, you know, one mention in the daily caller and your week is shot. And um, too many of those happen in a row and your plan is shot um, for whatever else you were working on. And we just can't afford that. So I would say anything, whether it's, you know, SOPs, drills, um, you know, contracting with a few good firms to have on retainer so that you have some firewalls built around this the operation that should be able to run even if people are off dealing with a fire. I think the only silver lining on the cloud of your first major social media crisis is that the second time it's much easier yeah. <laughs> there before. and you know that the sun actually will rise tomorrow morning yeah uh charlie how about you uh i would uh all right well we'll assume that that was something something uh bang on and uh observant as thoughts from charlie usually are he's back uh, he's back all right want to try again not really no, yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> I would just agree that proactive and planful, I think having, I'm looking at the calendar on the wall, having kind of a tabla rosa for people to look at when things go haywire so that they don't get sucked into the vortex of a crisis and can say, okay, here's what I need to be doing today so we can do this thing next week can be really, really effective. And it can be as simple as a calendar on the wall. Here's what we're doing. And when, here's how we stick on plan. Excellent. All right, we are at the end of our hour. Uh, Charlie, Jenny, Tracy, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you have too, and I hope our viewers have as well. Um, that is it for Advancement Live today. Uh, thank you so much to our guests, and once again to M. Stoner, and we will see you next time on Advancement Live. Thanks for tuning Thanks, in. Andrew.